You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the Old Testament book of Psalms. Here's Nate. Well, in Psalm 122, we have a pilgrim who is intensely excited and glad at what he's experiencing when he arrives in Jerusalem, even if this psalm really isn't him physically in Jerusalem, but in his mind's eye, imagining the moment that he will be physically in Jerusalem. What we see in this psalm is an excited pilgrim. Uh, Imagine, if you will, a young college student who misses her family. She looks forward to Thanksgiving, looks forward to a visit home, and is longing for that journey, longing for that time to be able to go home and see family and friends and loved ones. That kind of attitude is the attitude that our pilgrim here in Psalm 122 is going to express for the collective corporate worship of God, the the worship gathering uh, together of God's people. Now, uh, we know that in the New Testament, uh, we do not gather to Jerusalem, but we still have a worship gathering. In fact, the word that is used in the Greek language to describe the church is the word ecclesia. And ecclesia so often is a congregation or an assembly. So, of course, the ecclesia or the church is officially the church throughout the world. But the word itself, congregation or assembly, ecclesia, it indicates and speaks so often of a local church, a a local gathering of believers getting together to honor God with their worship and, of course, with their lives. And so this song that we're about to sing is a song that helps us in our pilgrimage because it helps us to have a vision for the worship gathering. Uh, it's, it helps us to uh, sing a song about the assembly, to have a, have a vision for what God could do as his people gather uh, together. Eugene Peterson said it this way. He said, it's a psalm of worship, a demonstration of what people of faith everywhere and always do, gather to an assigned place and worship their God. And, you know, this love for getting together with other Christians to worship God and appreciating that time together is really vital for the Christian life. It's vital for discipleship, as we'll see as we move through this psalm. So what we're going to see uh, from the song is we're going to see the pilgrim glad for the worship gathering. Uh, Then we're going to see him sing the Uh, praises of what it's doing to him to go to that worship gathering. And then finally, uh, he's going to declare that because of all of these great benefits, he seeks the peace of or the good of Jerusalem for the sake of the worship gathering. So, So we would say we seek the good of our local church and congregation. Okay, so the way that the psalm starts in verse 1 and 2, he says, I was glad... When they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. 
Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Now, like I've been saying, what Jerusalem was to the Israelite, the church is to the Christian. And here our Hebrew pilgrim is glad to hear an announcement that it's time to assemble. Uh, it's possible that when he says this, I, I, they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. It's possible that this word is actually a prophetic word or a hopeful word um, and that they haven't even actually yet arrived in Jerusalem. It, this seems to be possibly more of a vision that he has that oh this day is coming or i remember the last time i took pilgrimage and i rejoiced when they said to me we've arrived let's go in to the house of god uh, his attitude like i mentioned a few uh, moments ago is like a child that is glad to return home to visit uh, her family this is you know a sense of belonging and purpose and gladness to get to the house of God. Now, of course, the pilgrim's goal is not the assembly, but God. You know, he wants God, but he understands that in the assembly, he is going to get God uh, with the community, with the believers that he's gathering together with. And so what you see here in verse 1 and 2 is a man, a worshiper, a pilgrim, who has a vision for the body, has a vision for the gathering, has a vision for the collective uh, group of saints. Now, you know, we need to have this vision as well in our New Testament era. We need to have a vision for the assembly of God. Uh, you know, in the New Testament, perhaps some of the imagery that's used of the church would will be helpful to develop that vision inside your heart and life. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, one of the images that is used to describe the church is that of a body, that there are hands and feet and eyes and mouths and ears. And the concept there is that all of us have a function inside the body of Christ. So, you know, this helps us understand how vital we are to one another and that others have a need for us and that we have a need for others in the body of Christ. And, you know, the Lord, he fashions every one of us, gives us gifts, and he has a purpose for you in the body of Christ. And have you ever stopped to consider that just as your hand needs the rest of the body in order to be full and complete, so you also need the rest of the body of Christ in order to be complete. Also, another picture in the New Testament is the picture of the church as the bride of Christ. That he loves the church as the husband. He lays down his life for his bride and is working tirelessly now today to purify her and to, to, uh, present her and to prepare her for that day of ultimate wedded bliss for all of eternity uh, with him. Now, if we're to think of the church in that way, 
it might change the way that we see, you know, individual believers and individual congregations. They are the bride of Christ. I think sometimes we're far too quick to criticize or to insult, but this is the bride of Jesus. Perhaps we should have a little bit more respect in our minds and hearts and the way that we talk about and think about and feel about other believers. Another picture in the New Testament is that of a family, an actual household that is being built up uh, by the Lord, uh, built on the foundation of Jesus Christ and then the apostles. We are a family in Jesus. You might remember that Jesus announced when they said, your mother and your brothers are here to visit you. He said, who are my mother and my brother and my sisters? And he looked around at those who were hearing him teach, and he said, these are my brothers and my sisters. This is my family. And he was, I think, giving us a, a foretaste of what we are as the church. We are a family together. Other images that are used in the New Testament about the church are that of the fact that we're a, we are, are the branches of Christ and that we're the flock of Christ. But, but all these different images in the New Testament, they're designed to awaken the imagination in our hearts for what the church is. And that ought to make us uh, have a sense of value for the worship gathering when we get together. Now, I, I'm one of those guys. I, I don't believe that we should overemphasize what happens on Sundays. It, it, it is not at all the totality of your walk with God. Uh, if your Christianity is completely built upon Sunday alone, and, you know, that's the day that you worship and hear a little bit from God's word and then that's it there's nothing else i mean it's that's good to you know emphasize that in your life but it is not the totality of your walk with god uh just being there on sunday isn't going to give you a strong marriage necessarily for instance uh, just being there on sunday isn't going to sanctify you there are there are certain things that we go through as well where we lay our bodies upon the altar throughout the week and we ask god to help us and we cry out to him in prayer there's fellowship that is needed and and uh, the word of god that needs to be built upon perhaps the basic foundation that is being laid for us as we gather together on Sundays. So I don't think that we should overemphasize Sundays, nor should we underemphasize Sundays as well. It is there so often that a thirst and desire for holiness and love and wisdom and balance uh, can be found. And these things cannot be found while excluding the worship gathering from your life. You know, you can be a Christian without regular involvement in the local congregation, but you cannot live the Christian life without regular involvement in the local congregation. You know, because part of the Christian life is to find uh, elders and pastors, leaders to come under, to find other Christians to be able to serve and minister to, various generations to love and care for. So, 
The Christian life basically cannot be lived in isolation. The true disciple life is a life that is get glad for Christians gathering together. So the disciple, the pilgrim, uh, they are glad at the gathering together of believers. They would say with our psalmist, let us go to the house of the Lord. Uh, so this is a, a powerful and important part of the value system of the the person that is trying to live the pilgrim life. Do you love the body of Christ? Do you love gathering together uh, with other believers? Now, he goes on in his song and he begins to sing to us about what it does for us. What does the worship gathering do to us? And, you know, he's saying first that he has a, he's glad about it. He loves it. But secondly, what does it actually do for us? Why did he love it so much? Well, I think he loved it partly because of what it produced in his life. And I want to point out four things to you, and I'm sure there are many more, but four things here that we see in the Pilgrim's Song that the corporate worship produced in his life. First of all, in verse 3, he says, Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. So, you know, as they're climbing the mountain, he looks and he sees Jerusalem. The pilgrims saw Jerusalem. And he was moved. He was blown away by what he saw in Jerusalem. You know, it was different to him from the village that he'd come from or the countryside that he had lived in. Jerusalem was so much different than the small towns that had uh, been littered throughout uh, ancient Israel. Uh, everything he says there in Jerusalem, he says it's a city that was bound or is bound firmly together. Now, this is a description of city life on one hand, but a very compact city life. You know, we in our modern era, know of some cities that are very sprawling in nature, but then also cities that are very compact, where everything is built on top of itself and there's not much extra space. And the pilgrim here, he's moved by that. He, he sees this city that is bound firmly together, just building on top of building and the walls, you know, connecting together and there not being a lot of extra space. And to him, this is not a bad thing. In fact, it's a microcosm of the togetherness that God had given to Israel. That's why he goes on to say, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. In other words, what he was seeing in the city, this city that was bound firmly together, is what he was seeing in the corporate worship gathering as all these different tribes that lived in their separate places and locations came together. They were bound firmly together like the city as they worshiped the Lord. And this obviously is something beautiful that the worship gathering does for God's people. It gives us a sense of our togetherness in God. Now, we might call that unity. And that's a powerful word. But what we're seeing here is that unity is not 
uniformity. All of these different tribes came together and they didn't renounce the fact that they had tribes, but they retained those tribal identities, but they came up to worship God and experienced that unity as they did. Now, this might remind us in our modern era and dispensation of different denominations, perhaps, that exist, you know, where they're still believers. We are holding to the major cardinal doctrines, but we have differences of opinion on debatable areas within the Bible. You know, we we have differences of opinion on uh, eschatology or or pneumatology or uh, various elements that aren't salvific and aren't in any kind of compromise of scripture. And so you have these different denominations that are, you know, I think can represent different uh, different tribes, so to speak. And then, of course, you have different congregations. You know, in the town that I serve the Lord in, I'm so thankful for all the various congregations because I know that I could not be the pastor for every type of believer that lives here uh, in this community. And so you have all these different congregations that get together and, and they themselves, you know, they have different gifts and uh, emphases and things that they're better at than other churches. And we're there in a complementary kind of way trying to serve our city. But then, of course, this is probably most beautifully seen in the reality of different types of congregants coming together to worship the Lord. And as you look around and see the different types of people that are there, you should be looking around saying, man, I'm, I'm this time of worship as we gather. This is helping me to remember that there are people that are very different from me, but we are one in Christ Jesus. And the tr- truth of the matter is that you get a better picture of Jesus in the corporate assembly than you do by yourself. Because of a few different reasons. I mean, one is you get to see Christ in the lives of others and, you know, Christ likeness and things that remind you of Jesus that you don't demonstrate yourself all that strongly, but that they demonstrate very strongly. Maybe you're someone who is, you know, highly compassionate and the compassion of Christ is easily expressed through you, but maybe for you, uh, the, you know, service or something like that, or the prophetic, you know, strong, truthful word is not very strong in your life. And when you see that flowing from someone else, it helps you to see Jesus more clearly. Uh, but then also you get to receive from Jesus through others, you know, because we have all these different gifts and callings and ministries and perspectives And as the Holy Spirit is flowing through our lives, uh, we minister to each other. And if you weren't part of a local worship gathering, you wouldn't get to receive uh, from Christ through others. And then also you get to learn of Christ from others. Because what other people are learning about Jesus and what other people are thinking about Jesus, these are things that as you, you know, get to know them, you get to know the Lord in a special kind of way. Uh, I always think of that story that I think it was C.S. Lewis who talked about a a group of 
two friends that he had along with himself, so the group of three, and he just said, you know, I can know one, I can know each one of them one on one, but when the three of us are together, uh, the other brings out things from the third that I couldn't bring out myself one on one, but because the other guy is there, he brings those things out and I'm getting to learn of him uh, in a stronger way because of the collectiveness uh, together. So uh, here he's saying, look, we get a sense of our togetherness in God as we gather together in worship. Also, he t- says there in verse four, at the end of it, he says to give thanks to the name of the Lord. You know, in our worship gathering, we are offering thanks to God. And thanksgiving is helpful to us because, well, it magnifies God. You know, so it's so easy for us to forget about the Lord and forget who he is and what he's done in our lives. But when we're thankful to him and express our thanks to him, which is what we're to be doing in large part when we gather together, as we're thankful to God, we are actually magnifying Uh, the Lord. It says in Psalm 69, verse 30, I will magnify him with thanksgiving. So you're, you know, being refreshed in who God is. And thanksgiving helps us to live above our feelings. You know, we go to worship with other believers because we choose to, but we might not always feel like it. But as we thank the Lord, we climb out of those feelings and into a new feeling of thankfulness to God. But really here, when we're thankful to the Lord, we are reminded of our vital relationship with God. So in a sense, as they went to Jerusalem, they were remembering what it was all about. You know that uh, I'm in, I'm, I, I know God. I love God. He's interested in me. I belong to him. All of this was put into perspective there in Jerusalem. Now, in verse 5, he goes on and he says, There thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Now, I think here when he says this to us, what, what he's declaring is that, you know, there in Jerusalem, the thrones of David's line, they were established. And... From that throne, the king would declare righteousness and declare justice throughout ancient Israel and, you know, would break down what is right and from what is wrong. Uh, And they would then go beyond that into doing that which is right and refusing to do that which is wrong. And I think this can serve for us as a beautiful picture of the truth that we are to receive in our worship gatherings. This is one of the things that is so helpful to us when we gather together. We get to hear the judgments of God from the throne of the Son of David, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Uh, I was looking at in First and Second Timothy just some of the statements that uh, center around being a Bible-centered and Bible-teaching uh, kind of group when we gather together. And here are just some of them. He said in 1 Timothy 3, verse 15, we are the pillar, the church is, the pillar and the buttress of the truth. In 1 Timothy 4, verse 13, Paul tells Timothy to, until he comes, devote 
himself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Then in 1 Timothy 5.17, he said, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And then in 2 Timothy, he tells us that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and for training in righteousness. And then finally, in 2 Timothy 4.2, he says, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. So one of the things that we get in the corporate gathering is we get the word of God. We get teaching uh, where God speaks to us and encourages us from his word. Now, lastly, of the different elements that our ancient pilgrim says that he's going to receive there in Jerusalem, he says in verse 6, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace within your walls and security within your towers. <clears throat> the pilgrim here, he prays for the peace of Jerusalem. Now, you know, personally, I think that it's always a good idea to be praying for the peace of Jerusalem. In any era, any dispensation that we are in, I think it's great to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And if you've heard me teach for any length of time, you know that I believe that the Bible teaches rather clearly that a day is coming when the time of the fullness of the Gentiles is complete, the time of the Gentiles is full or complete, and God will turn his attention to the nation of Israel once again and reestablish Israel and establish you know, his rule and reign from Israel and even right there in Jerusalem. I believe that Christ will return to Jerusalem. Um, but on the other hand, you know, there came a time where Jesus wailed that peace was now going to be taken away from Jerusalem. So in a sense, when we read in this Old Testament psalm, pray for the peace of Jerusalem, this is, I think, an Old Testament version of Jesus's prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is praying for the church to have peace, to be able to continue to assemble and to operate. This is similar to what Paul said in 1 Timothy 2, verse 1 and 2, where he said, I urge you that to make supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. That's his way of saying, hey, pray for political leaders that they'll just leave the church alone so that we can live a peaceful and quiet life and that we can do the things that God has asked us to do. But he's praying for a peace to be there in Jerusalem and peace to be within its walls and security within its towers. Now, this is helpful to us because when you think about it, the assembly, you know, going up three times each year to Jerusalem, it was just a small fraction of this pilgrim's life. You know, maybe depending on where they lived and how long they decided to stay for the feasts and festivals and all that once they arrived in Jerusalem, it, it might have been three, four, 
weeks of the entire year that they were dedicating to, you know, going up to Jerusalem. And certainly at home, they'd gather together on the Sabbath and the synagogue and they would learn and all of that. But when you consider all of this, you have to realize that, you know, the, that weekly Sabbath and then the three times a year going up, it really did equate to a small part of this pilgrim's life. But what he seems to be announcing here is that what happens there overflows into everything else. And if there's peace there and he's able to go and get that peace, then it will overflow beautifully into everything else in their life. You know, one of the things that we must understand if we're going to make it in this pilgrim life is that one of the most practical things that you can do is you could go to worship and to gather together with your church family to sing and to pray and to study the Bible, uh, to serve each other. It's a very practical thing. Uh, we might not think of it as practical. You know, give me a class on organization or budgeting or something like that. But the reality is that when you take that time, your blade is sharpened for the task. Your thirst is satisfied. Your nourishment, your, your need spiritually is in part given to you. And the idea is that it will overflow into everything else. And that is you're, you know, hearing about your identity in Christ and the meaning that you have in him as you're learning about victory over sin, as you're seeing exemplary Christians. The idea is that when you gather in that kind of way, it overflows into everything. And so this pilgrim, he is praying hard for the peace in Jerusalem to remain. He ends the psalm this way. Verse 8. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, Peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord, our God, I will seek your good. And so it, what he, the way he closes is he's just saying, My heart is grown for the house of the Lord. You know, when God's house is doing well, God's people are doing well. And when worship and prayer and sacrifice and sanctification are happening in the house, uh, they find their application in everyday life as well. So we want these elements to exist. He prayed for Jerusalem, wanting the temple to do well. He loved God, so he loved God's people, and he loved God's house. So how should we feel you know, about the gathering of God's people at God's house? How should we feel about the ecclesia, the gathering? Well, Perhaps a good example for us would be David himself. This psalm actually begins with a little prescript, a song of ascents of David. And David, when he moved the capital of Israel to Jerusalem and began to develop Jerusalem, he eventually moved the tabernacle to Jerusalem and with the hopes that someday he would be able to turn it into a temple. And God had to tell him, look, you're not going to build the temple, but you can prepare all the materials, but your son Solomon will build the temple. But you might remember that when they brought the tabernacle into Jerusalem, you know, David, he took off his kingly uh, garments of authority and he danced before the ark of God. His wife despised it for despised him for it, but it was a time of great celebration in his heart. 
And he was not going to a well-built Jerusalem yet. He was not going to a well-built temple. He, he was still there in the era where Jerusalem was newer and the tabernacle had not yet been replaced by the permanent temple. And I think what is happening here in this song is that David has a vision for what Jerusalem would be. He wanted to see it built up. He wanted to see a temple. And so in a sense, this whole psalm is a prophetic psalm. And perhaps for you, as you think about the local worship gathering, much of what you're wanting is prophetic. It's not there yet. The passion, the desire, the godliness that you would like to see, perhaps it's not there yet. And you, I think, can prophetically with David sing this song and continue to maintain and develop that assembling of the saints passion uh, for God. And as you do, you'll be helped in your pilgrimage. You will not be able to make it without gathering together with other believers. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.